Welcome to Panic Mode, the podcast for gamers and game designers, with your hosts on an endless search for meaning, Shelby and Aiden. Wow, that got really deep really fast. Yeah, I figured we'd start deep. Okay. <laughs> start deep and deep, if you know what I'm saying. I, I have no idea what you're saying. I don't either. I'm right. on a constant search for meaning, so. <laughs> okay, so what's on, what's on the docket for today's episode today, Shelby? <laughs> so today, we're going to be talking about implicit communication in game design. So... This was an idea for an episode you had after, on the heels of last week's episode about social deduction and game design. That yeah. You wanted to talk about how games can communicate with players and what deductions we might be asking the players to make about the games. Yeah, so I think oftentimes when we think, you know, the phrase like communication in games, we're often thinking about a player experience and how to communicate that experience effectively as designers. So let's say, you know, we want to teach the player how to jump. It's how do we communicate that, you know, they press A to do so, or we want to communicate an atmosphere of kind of like creepiness or or sadness. You know, how, how do we do that? How do we evoke those emotions within the player? But today, what I really want to focus on is that implicit communication, which is far more about uh, mechanics and narrative that the player can read into in order to derive meaning from what's happening and kind of understand the game in the broader context of the world. Um, so I know that's kind of, I don't know, I think it's a, a bit confusing to sort of think about. Um, I know that well, you and I have been having a lot of discussions uh, about it. Think of it this way. It's like, um, pretend you're, you're watching the opening act of like a, a crappy Nicolas Cage movie. <laughs> and Nicolas Cage's best friend kind of has a skeevy look halfway through. And you know... 100% that that guy's going to be the villain for the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's not just because he's played by Sean Bean. <laughs> but that's like that's implicit information that's being given to the given to the viewer at that point. Yeah, exactly. And this kind of stuff can be applied to video games in really interesting ways. Yeah, so it's it's yeah, exactly what you said basically. So it's, you know, Nicholas the player Cage, 100%. Exactly. Yeah. Just Sean Bean, Nicholas Cage, that's all you really you need. <laughs> that, that's the episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs> but um, you know, Im- implicitly, you know, implies haha that information is being communicated, you know, by the designers of the game to the players without explicitly stating this is what's going on. So, you know, when a villain appears and we we know it's a villain for a multitude of reasons, perhaps, you know, how they look, um, if they're wearing, you know, dark colors maybe, um, or like a scary looking hat or carrying a weird weapon or something. And then- I've never identified a villain before based on hat, but that's interesting. (laughs) I don't know. It's just, they have weird hats. I don't know if you just look at, look into it. Um, Or, you you know, by by maybe the musical theme that's playing. Um, These things are not usually outright stated that, you know, this is the bad guy. Sometimes they are. Um, but they're often, you know, in opposition to right. you as the player. Um, and that's sort of the tip of the iceberg of, you know, implicitly saying like, oh, it's the villain because they, you know, the actions they take and stuff. But we're kind of going to go deeper into this yeah. and explore how ideas like real world knowledge, how we as people take our own experiences into the game and use that to sort of navigate the world. Like I think um, a great example is, you know, RPGs where you're talking with characters and NPCs. And a lot of the time, they want something from us, especially if it's like romance and you're trying to figure out the right thing to say. There is no, you know, guide, at least in the game that pops up and says, you know, in order to romance Garrus from Mass Effect, you need to say these things, right? It's, it's through talking to him and, and picking up what he's putting down <laughs> that you can sort of navigate your way through those conversations. It reminds me of that, uh, I can't remember if it was a video or just a gif, but this guy's playing Mass Effect 3 and he's, or maybe it was the most Mass Effect one, but he's going through the game 
and he, he meets Ashley for the first time and he goes and Googles how to have sex with Ashley. <laughs> and then he goes and he meets Garish for the first time and then he goes and Googles how to have sex with Garish. <laughs> and then he meets uh, uh, Rex for the first time and he, said, and he goes and Googles how do you cure the genophage? And then he backspaces back, he says backspaces, how do you have sex with a crow? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But yeah, it's, it's stuff like that that you can Google because there is a certain way that you know, that you need to do it, but it's not explicitly stated in the game. So that's why people feel the need to, you know, go online and make sure that they're doing it right. Right. Because it it does take time and energy to, to really pay attention to what these characters are saying so that you can sort of understand their personality and and say the things that they want to hear. Um, so if there are any English majors or classics majors out there, um, or, you know, researchers, uh, academics, my hands are both up right now. (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) Um, there is something called the hermeneutics of suspicion. I think I've met hermeneutics. <laughs> of suspicion? <laughs> so that's very, very fancy words. Um, I struggle to remember them all in that order. Uh, but basically the hermeneutics of suspicion refers to reading and specifically reading for meaning that goes beneath the surface. So this is like when you're you're reading a book and the idea is that you'd be constantly on guard for maybe the author to like spring a trap on you and, and the narrative would go in an entirely different way than you thought it would. Um, or, you know, reading very deeply for meaning that's popping up basically as you're reading it. And so not a, po- a lot of people read this way because it's very exhausting and right. it can be really boring because you have to constantly you know, be stopping and thinking, okay, how does this connect to something else? Oh, what if, what if the author is going to, you know, kind of subvert this on me all of a sudden and, and, and do something entirely different than what I think they're going to do, right? But nobody really, I'm sure maybe some people do, I don't want to say nobody, well, but just, not a lot of people read that way. Just think about it like watching like a, like a murder mystery in a movie or something. And it's mm-hmm. like, there's obviously all sorts of clues the filmmakers are giving you to try to figure out who the who the killer is. Yeah. But it's exhausting to read into every single thing. <laughs> yes. Because a lot of those things are red herrings and you're not going to be rewarded for reading into those things correctly. Yeah, that's right. So it's, it is exhausting to read that way and this, that's not really the point. This is still entertainment, so you're not going to get the rewarding feeling of figuring out who killed Mr. Body early on in the movie just because you picked up some clues. Like, you just sit back and enjoy the ride and you can look for the clues after you know who it is. Yeah, exactly. Um... But I think where the hermeneutics of suspicion becomes interesting is when it's applied to video games. Because I think a lot of the time, we're actually engaging in video games far more than we are when we read books. And I think a huge reason is because one, you know, we're, we're directly interacting with the material by moving around our characters. But also, especially in terms of narrative heavy games where we're making choices that impact the game, we're yeah. really, really thinking about how our choices are going to have a larger impact on the world around us and maybe even affecting what ending we're going to get. Yeah, like imagine if you were in a, in a murder mystery in a game and all of a sudden <laughs> you, you were able to figure out who it was. That's a big deal because now you can change your actions accordingly in the game, but in a movie doesn't matter. Yeah. So that's another instance where the hermeneutics of suspicion are very rewarding in, video, in a video game setting. Yeah. So think too, back to maybe the last video game you played and you know what, what its story was. And think if there was ever a moment where you thought, oh man, like this is getting tense, like so- right. something's about to happen. And this isn't something that I think we consciously think about. I think I definitely have to, you know, think back after and, and wonder like, oh man, like I did know something was going to happen there. Um, I was just playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey and, and no spoilers here. In case, it's like a 120 hour game. Like I'm nowhere near finished, but um, somewhere in the middle, there was a quest where I had to differentiate between um, two sisters. Uh, and I won't say much more than that, but before that happened, I actually, halfway through the quest, I actually Googled the quest because I felt like something big was going to happen mm-hmm. at the end of it. And I can't, 
you know, directly explain what I was thinking because in the moment I didn't think to like write it down, but there was enough happening that was giving me red flags in the narrative that was sort of like, something feels really off here. And I just, I just have this feeling that it's going to lead to something bigger in the grand narrative of, of the game. And so I did, I went and Googled and I was like, what is happening? And it was right. There was something huge that was going to happen at the end that was actually going to have an impact, I think on like the final ending. And so I think we as players, we don't give ourselves enough credit sometimes or don't even think that we're taking all of this knowledge and all of this experience we have from reading stories, you know, when we're young and understanding how plot and narrative works to to kind of figure out where these climaxes are happening and where important plot points pop up. Right. And we don't even realize it. It's just kind of subconsciously happening. I think one, because we're, we're you know, we're intelligent people and and we play a lot of video games and we carry that knowledge into the games that we play in and into our lives. And I think that's something that's really interesting that we don't really latch on to a lot. But I think, you know, the other half is just having amazing game designers who also maybe aren't thinking about this directly, but who are doing such a good job designing the game that you can sort of maybe sort of picture where these these interesting moments might happen, where you really start thinking like, okay, something's off here. I have a funny feeling. Something's either, you know, going to jump yeah. out at me or this this plot point is going to be like seriously important later on. Just things that get you thinking. Um, and I suppose like part of the today's episode is trying to figure out how to approach this from the game yes, designer yeah, perspective exactly. and say like, how do we get the player to feel that consistently? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think it's, I think it's a really interesting thing to be able to do in your game to right. have people think like, man, I'm so invested in what's going on right now and I don't want to mess it up. So let me think about how all of these things that I've done up to this point are going to affect literally everything else. Like, that's crazy, right? Um, and it also happens with mechanics. And we'll we'll talk about that, too. So the, the mechanics of, you know, like leveling up systems or something. Um, but yeah, let's get into some some case studies of some games and talk a little bit more about how implicit meaning can right. happen. Talk to me about Mass Effect 2. All right. So Mass Effect 2, there is a, a quest line called the Reaper IFF. What which is an is IFF? An Identification Friend or Foe System. I'm actually... Unbelievably amazed that you knew that. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I thought I was going to blindside you. Um, so this this friend or foe system is basically on a ship because the Normandy, which is the ship that you as Commander Shepard, your, your player yeah. character, is on, and they need to be able to traverse uh, a border, basically. And so this friend or foe identification system is going to identify the ship as a friend and let it through. Yeah. Let it through the, the border. It's a, it's a false passport. Yeah, basically. So that's basically all you need to know. What's interesting about this quest is that it triggers a timer after after you you begin it, right? So you you acquire this system and then this IFF and you have to decide when you're going to activate it. What basically when you're going to go through this border. But it's not a literal timer. It's just counting how many missions you've done between receiving the IFF and activating it. Yes, basically. So um, the moment that you activate it, you only have so much time in terms of what you do. So yeah. like. You know, you'll, I think you only have one quest to pick up Legion, I think, if anybody is uh, to pick up another character, and then you have to go right. um, through with the mission, basically. Um, but what is interesting about this timer is that a lot of people knew that it was coming. And the reasoning, I think, is because earlier in the game, there's a mission. I don't know what the exact... I think it's called Horizon. 
Mm-hmm. But you you go to a place called Horizon. And how this happens is that it's it's triggered automatically. So you, you hit a certain plot point and then you're, you're called to go to this planet. And you don't get a choice as to whether or not you go there. It's just a scripted part of the game where you just sort of drop everything that you've been working on and you just have to go. That the game has shown that it's willing to infringe on your autonomy and selecting yes, missions. Yes, exactly. Right? That, was, so, that was a freebie. Nothing bad yeah, happened. Yeah, no, there. nothing bad happens. It just kind of drags you out from whatever you're doing and it just sends you sends you to Horizon and you deal with that. And this is the, in the beginning of the game. Keep that in mind as well, right? This is early in the game. So what is great about this is that later on, it prepares the player to be blindsided like that again, potentially, yeah. right? And so later in the game with the Reaper IFF, I've this is actually a point of my research where I've been looking into a lot of Let's Plays online with blind Mass Effect playthroughs, so people who've never played the game mm-hmm. before. And I've been watching and listening to how they sort of logic their way through what they're going to do next. And a lot of them are freaked out to do this mission without first, you know, having having the loyalty missions of their team completed. And there's some dialogue in a cutscene before that suggests this might there be is. the case. Um, so when you get this Reaper IFF, your team comes together and there's one character named Miranda and she says, you know, Shepard, I think we should wait and make sure that our team is strong enough to, to be able to handle this. And there's another character, Jacob, who says you know, Shepard, we need to move now. Like, this Mm -hmm. is, there's no time to wait. Like, this is so important. We need to get this done now. And so you're you're kind of presented with this binary choice, right? Of like, okay, do I finish my other missions or do I go do this now? But it's not super apparent that one is better than the other. Well, exactly. Maybe there is a reasoning to go go on things right away. It's presented in a way where I think either would be a valid choice. Yes. But what is cool is that a lot of players actually figured that, well, what if... I do this mission and it locks me in the way that it did on Horizon. But see, the, the, this information has always been implicit, though. Yes, exactly. Like, but it, it, but even if you really wanted to look hard, Mass Effect Two is even telling you which one is the right decision. <laughs> but it always makes a big deal about how you have to get these people to trust you. Yes. Yeah. And it's and if and uh, an attentive player there, a player who is engaging in the hermeneutics of suspicion, is going to realize that oh, it's saying you got to get ready now. Yeah. That Jacob's Jacob's stance is wrong. Yeah. So even though the game, you know, didn't explicitly come out and say, hey, a timer is going to start when you begin this. Make sure you have all your ducks in a row. Players, a lot of players um, were able to pick up on, you know, I'm going to finish these other missions before I start this because I I have a feeling that, you know, poop is going to hit the fan. (laughs) And they were right. In your research, how like how often has that been the case? Like 80% of players? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like like almost 99%. Yeah. I think I've watched like maybe 20, 20 Let's Play videos. Um, so, you know, which isn't, I'll be fair, a large sample size. Um, but all of them were really, really attentive to the game and what they were doing. They And they weren't using guides or anything like that. And they were all really trying to do the best that they could mm-hmm. for their team. And they were all really questioning, like, man, I don't think I'm gonna. I'm the, I don't think I'm gonna go for this. And a lot of them too were just so invested in getting the loyalty missions done and building right. up the trust of their team that they just wanted to k- keep doing that, right? And so I think you know part of the beauty of Mass Effect Two as well is that they do such a good job crafting those loyalty missions. Like they're so interesting and fun to play that it is sort of a draw for a player to keep doing that um, and think like, well, I don't. I don't want to you know mess up my team, right? So I think that's another kind of implicit right. sort of feeling that they hope to incite. Um, so just, yeah, I think that's just such a cool example of a game not stating a timer's going to start careful, but having the player sort of realize 
oh man, <laughs> this is not going to be good if I if I mess this up. Um, so yeah, I just think that's a great example of, of implicitly communicating to players without right. without them suspecting anything in terms of like seeing the strings of the game. And by that, I just mean like you can you can sort of see what the designers are trying to do. And it's sort of like, oh, well, I, I know that they're kind of forcing me in this direction. It could have gone either direction. And I think players I'm, appreciated I'm not going to lie. I totally blew it on my first playthrough. <laughs> I got everyone killed. <laughs> oh, Aiden. I think um, I think I only got Miranda killed, which I wasn't upset about. Is that, is that canon to your universe It is, now? yeah. It's 100%. Dead. Yeah, I played Mass Effect 3 without her, which is actually really sad because apparently she has like a really cool... Yeah. Um, side mission so i may have to go back well that's the risk of carrying consequences between well, things, there you go. but that's neither, here, that's neither here nor there right now so yeah that's uh that's mass effect 2 so you want to talk about a uh, heavy rain for our next case yeah. study? so heavy rain um is a game where you, you switch between multiple perspectives of characters yeah. and for this example we're going to be focusing on norman jaden yes norman jaden who is an he's investigator the, he's the super fbi cop voice <laughs> whereas the super shades and he's super, super cool and he, <laughs> he talks with that super sweet new york accent oh yeah so norman um, has a condition, I guess, where he uses like an, an artificial intelligence, um, yeah, he, augmented he, reality yeah. system. So he, he spends a lot of time in virtual reality and he kind of takes these pills to help him keep things stable. Yeah. Yeah. And there's multiple points in the game where the player is asked, do you want to take the pills? But the pills have side effects that will make things worse and make it and start to bleed the virtual reality into the real world for him. Like it'll yes. start to be straight up hallucinations. Yeah. But a lot of the times when the player is asked this question, it's in a moment of, like, dire need. Yeah, he's like, gonna, he's, he's, gonna ha- he's having a freak yeah. out. He's, he's breaking down or something. But what, what is interesting about this is that this is kind of based off of players' real-world knowledge about how medication works. Right. So I think it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, implicit knowledge that when you, when you take medication, a lot of the time that's going to, like do something to, to your it's going to make your head fuzzy or right. um even though it's you know maybe fighting an infection in your body like you may not be able to function mentally um i know that just happened with aiden aiden was just recently sick and the medication was not doing so well Apparently for his I, had brain. To, I had to choose between like <laughs> severe cold symptoms or just complete delusion but yeah. yeah so i think it kind of relies on this idea that we're aware of the side effects of of taking medication and what's interesting is that it's never explicitly stated in the game whether taking the pills or not taking the pills is the correct move. It's heavily because implied that he needs to, but you as the player can choose not to. Because here's the other side of the coin with Heavy Rain, though, is that there's the implicit information that your characters can die. Yes. And you don't get a game over screen. The game goes on and you play as the remaining, remaining characters, which yeah. is like a really impressive feat for Heavy Rain. Yeah. But so you're going to be put in situations where... Norman's like he's freaking out he looks like he might die or break down or something and he wants to take the pills really badly mm-hmm. and you as the player have to decide do I take the pills and you have to recognize that some players are gonna sit there and think if I don't take the pills right now he's going to die yeah and that's that's the bad that's the bad thing yeah. I don't want that so there's there's valid instances of that but yeah. the short of the game the short of it is is that the pills were worse the whole time yes and that you take the pills even once you're gonna get a worse ending for Norman Jaden yeah Exactly. And so the, the proper, or I guess the, the ending where he lives and you get the best one, yeah. best in brackets, of course, you know, everybody has a different idea of what their best ending is, but where Norman lives is, is never having taken the pills. Right. Right. But that's something the game never says. Yeah. It's something that you as the player sort of get to infer based on, on the game world. And what I think is, is so cool about this situation is that, like I said, you know, it is based off of real world knowledge of how medication works and what it can do to you. Um, and getting getting addicted to augmented reality in VR games is a very serious issue. <laughs> well, that affects, also that, right? Us all. Also that. Um, 
So, yeah, I guess I think the, the choice to take the pills or not take the pills is just just has a lot going on in it for the player to think about, right? Because like you said, it's like, okay, you're sitting there as the player and you're like, is he going to die? Because that's the worst. That can so happen. That's not, that's not a game over screen. Exactly, that right? Game, that, that character's dead. But you're also, you also might be thinking, well, why is the game offering me this choice in the first place? Right. Right? Like, if, if it wasn't important, he would just take them. So there must be something to them asking. The information has been the information that has been made explicit is that your characters can die. Yeah. The pills are bad for you. Yeah. But he wants the pills. Yes. So that's the explicit information. Yeah. Yeah. So then you you get to just read into that and just sit there wondering like, do I take them or do I not take? Like, what what are you telling me, game? Which is which is exactly what we're talking about here is keeping your players engaged. Through implicit information, yeah. like just sitting there and puzzling through and I, what is the right thing like, to I do think, right now. I think in my first playthrough of the game that like I was like really off taking the pills. I never wanted to take the pills, but I think I broke down exactly once and that was enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was exactly kind of what the game wanted. It wanted to push me as hard as it could just to break mm. me just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So time for a bit more, uh, time for mechanics-based examples. So yeah. We're going to talk about Dark Souls 3. So in Dark Souls 3, there is um, a leveling system, which if you're a Souls player, you'll be really familiar with this. You right. exchange Souls, um, which is basically the currency of the game, in order to level up. Uh, souls also function to purchase things, make purchases for items in the right. game, uh, etc. So what's interesting about this is that all of a sudden, you come across a character... I think it's Yuria of Londor? No, it's the guy It's the guy who comes before her. Okay, okay. So Yolo of, of Yondor. Yolo oh. of Londor. <laughs> that is... A- <laughs> That's a tough name. Tongue twister. Okay. So this guy, he shows up. Um, there's a lot that you have to do to make him show up. I'm not going to go into that right now. Basically, all you need to know is that he appears at Firelink Shrine and you can walk up to him and he'll be like, sup. And you'll be like, hey man, how's it going? He's like, great. Do you want to level for free? <laughs> and you'll be like, that sounds chill. Sure. <laughs> that might be the default reaction. But when I first encountered that guy... If if an NPC says to me, it's like, hey, hey, you want you want you want some free levels? Yeah, that sounds like someone saying, it's like, hey, hey, you want you want some drugs? You want some drugs? Yeah. Like, I was very suspicious of that. Yeah. And that was because of the implicit connotations, because it was breaking the mechanics of the game. Exactly. So what's great about this example is that the mechanics, like you said, you pay souls to level up. Right. That's been established. That is how the system works. And right. all of a sudden, this Yol character comes along, and he's like, hey. <laughs> Let's do something different. And I I think it's meant to incite in the player this kind of hesitation and really kind of fear of the unknown because it's like, well, because what are you talking about? Like, I have to pay for this. Like, Because the question he's asking me there is like, do you want the fast and easy way or are you going to do things that's the long and hard way? Yeah. And like the fast and easy way always makes me raise an eyebrow. It's like, okay, what's the catch? What's the catch? Yeah. Guy? And I think especially for players who are, you know, going through this game for the first time. Um, Dark Souls has a lot of like deep lore and some crazy character interactions and endings that you can get. And so I think when a character pops up like this, who is just offering you a free ride, I think it's only five, I think it's five levels that you get. five free levels. Um, you know, for five free levels. I think you're going to be very, very untrusting of what is going to ha- what the consequences of taking Especially this on Especially in a be. game that is famously hard. All yes. of a sudden saying, hey, do you want this to be easy? Yeah, exactly, like, right? I don't know about this. So again, this is, this is just a great example of really making your players think through a situation. Right. And, and thinking deeply and critically about what this might mean as consequences for the game. Um, but also, you know, what does this mean in terms of breaking the rules that I thought existed? Because this is even more scary because you're not just getting punished in the narrative. You could get punished mechanically. Yeah. Because Dark Souls is not afraid to put you in an area that you are 
not ready for. Yeah. That there could be situations where maybe you do this level up system and maybe it breaks your character somewhere in the future and all of a sudden it's like, well, I'm just not strong enough to beat this area and it's going to be a lot of work yeah. to be able to beat this area. And these are the kind of questions that Dark Souls 3 is willing to pose to you and yeah. that you as the player have to try to read into. Yeah, for sure. So I think what actually ends up happening with this is that I think you trade Dark Sigils for the levels um, and that makes it easier for you to become hollow in the long run. There isn't actually a downside to being hollow in Dark Souls Not 3. Not mechanically, oddly enough. There was in other games. Yes, but yeah, in Dark Souls 1 and 2 there, there is. But just Dark Souls in, 2. Just, just Dark Souls 2? Yeah. Oh, okay, because I read online that it was Dark Souls as well. They, they have different mechanics, but Dark Souls 2 had the most visceral one, I'd say, where it would reduce your health if you were hollow. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so Dark Souls 3, there really isn't um, a known, at least, <laughs> um, there, there's, like, there's, there's, like, small minor ones, but the gist of it is it's more... It actually is more of a narrative-related thing. Yes, if exactly. You, if, if you want to get the... Uh, if you, if you want to sign up with Yol here. Exactly. And something else to note that is that if you ever want to get rid of, um, like, take the sigil off of yourself, basically, so that you, you yeah. stop becoming hollow, it costs an exorbitant amount of well, souls to it, do that. it's costing you what the level would cost anyway. Exactly, yeah. That you're trading your next level up for this one that you got free a yeah. while ago. It's so just, you're going to have to end up you're, paying. You're paying it back. Um, which is going to seem like a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. <laughs> when you get there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think, you know, like we said, a new player playing the game for the first time not looking up a guide or anything is going to be really weirded out by that. And I think for good reason. Right. Um, and that's just, you know, another interesting way to, to set up mechanics and then break them in a way to trigger for the player. Something unusual is happening here. I got to be, I got to be careful basically. But not even necessarily break mechanics, but just find ways to have the game mechanically give implicit information. Yes. Well, yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah. And what, one of the ways is just subverting what you think you yeah. understand about the game world for sure. So, Million dollar question. What is this good for? What is good about being able to implicitly communicate with your players? I think a, just a huge part is, you know, getting your players to engage critically as they play. And I don't mean that in a way of like, oh, like, you know, read into things and you should be able to like write a thesis statement. And the old hermeneutics. <laughs> yeah, the old hermeneutics. Um, what I mean by that is just, you know, being critically engaged is just being engaged in general and being absorbed in the story and caring about what's going on. Right. And I think this is a great way to have that spark of interest as well, to really get the player thinking. I like with the pills, for example, right? Like, man, you you probably feel a little bit of stress every time that thing pops up. Right. But I don't think it's a bad stress in terms of, oh, this is like stressing me out. I want to put it down. But in terms of I want to do the right thing for me and I'm really trying hard to do that and so that that really just keeps you thinking right so I think keeping in mind what information can I implicitly sort of transfer to the player or or hope that they understand by presenting them with these these sort of interesting maybe off-kilter situations that aren't 100% clear is just such a great way to keep players engaged and interested and and passionate about what they're and playing and what they're even involved need, in. It doesn't even, even need to be every 10 minutes. Like It probably no, is even yeah. more, most effective when it's every couple hours because going back to the Mass Effect 2 example, the fact that the game has shown me that it's willing to infringe on my autonomy and, let, mm. and to choose my next mission for me and really mm. force narrative beats that I may not have wanted is going to keep me on my toes for every mission. I think. Yeah, exactly. But, and I don't, I don't think every mission needs to be making those decisions and having mm. that kind of, it does not necessarily need to override my autonomy like that. But the fact that it can yeah. is keeping me engaged. Definitely. 
Um, I think, so another example is the game Hollow Knight, which is a, a platformer, and one of the mechanics that you pick up in terms of how you move your character around is you can latch onto a wall and then charge, and then you can shoot yourself across, right. across like a ravine or something. And what's really cool about this mechanic is that pretty much you start to learn, like, and remember, the game doesn't explain to you how to use it, it just mm -hmm. says, you know, these are the buttons you push in order to like wall jump, right. basically, right? And then you get to decide where, location-wise, you use it. And what's that's really interesting is that every time you you go to a new area and you see a, you know some water or like a cavern and you can't see the piece like a piece of land next to it that you could possibly land on immediately i started thinking oh i can use like my jump charge thing and just shoot across mm -hmm. and it was it was crazy how fast i started thinking that and it just became automatic like anytime i saw like an empty chasm i was like okay i'm gonna like fly across that and see what's on the other side and what was really cool is that I was rewarded for that a lot of the time because often there was something way to hell and guard on the other side of right. that chasm. Um, so I think too, you know, when we ask what is this good for, well, it's great for rewarding your players for for thinking deeply about what is possible to do with the game, what you can do with mechanics, what what you could possibly do with the narrative in terms of what endings you might get or or what characters, uh, what things you might learn about different characters, right? Um, so I think that was a that was a fun way to sort of, you know, be rewarded and feel smart, feel like you you did a good. <laughs> You're yeah. like, man, thanks, Gabe. <laughs> um, do you want to talk about the oh what it what you should be careful of? <laughs> so I'm gonna put an asterisk on this because if if you don't do this well enough, that if you're, you're you're too implicit, you're too subtle with your messages to the players, they could feel blindsided about what you're throwing at them. Like mm -hmm. imagine for instance that you're building like a dungeon crawler type game and you put these little like buttons on the floor when the player steps on them it opens the door mm -hmm. and then one time you decide the platform they, they sit on it and the floor opens up and they die in a pit of spikes yeah they have to have indication that that happens otherwise they feel blindsided mm -hmm. and you as a designer may think like oh well i i made it really implicit that it's the the platforms with the blue trim are the ones that <laughs> open doors and the platforms with the cyan trim are the ones that are the pits <laughs> and it's like some really subtle intricate detail yeah. like that 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 may not resonate with players even though yeah. you may feel really intelligent as the game designer for thinking i put this really interesting implicit detail mm -hmm. into the game you've got to test for that you got to make yeah. sure the players are picking up on it and like you said in your example of Mass Effect 2, I'm sure that scene that was written that talked about whether or not you should go and prepare prepare more, whether or not you should do the IFF right away, was written to death because they needed to make sure the players were picking up on it. Yeah, and I think, think too, right back to the, the IFF example, what if in the beginning of the game that Horizon mission, they that, wasn't, that didn't happen in that way? It right. wasn't something the player just was automatically dragged into. I think, you know, the IFF would have gone very differently with players being very frustrated that, okay, well, why am I being, you know, automatically forced to do this mission all of a sudden? Like, right. this has never happened before, right? And so I think that leads to a lot of frustration. And but because that seed was planted, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It kind of goes back to our episode of tutorials where, like, the Horizon mission is kind of like teaching the player the mechanic in a safe space. Yes, exactly. But the IFF is when there's actual consequences yeah. and they have to do better. Yeah. All right, so Shelby, how, how do you design implicit communication? Million <laughs> dollar um, question. I think there's a lot of different ways that you can go about doing it. You know, looking for opportunities to remove explicit information. Um, so this is just basically having a really solid idea of what you want your game to be and mm -hmm. what you want your players to pick up on. And then, you know, sort of take a look and think, well, what if, what if I don't tell them this? Is that right. going to make the ending more interesting? Is this going to make it a more interesting problem for the player to think through rather than us thinking through it for them? Um, 
there's also, you know, think about real world knowledge and what you can draw on just generally about the world to help players think through right. something, right? Like with the with the medication, with the pills. Lots of people have familiar, you know, have familiarity with with taking pills, um, or or know what side effects might be, right? And right. so that gets people thinking. But when you're when you're doing this from a narrative standpoint, it's it's really a fine art of how you yeah. write the scenes and how you express the impl- implicit information. Because like the example with the pills, is that I think he makes some comment like I shouldn't take too many more of these. Mm-hmm. Some really offhand subtle <laughs> comment like that that kind of indicates to the player how they should act yeah. but if it's too but if he makes a statement that's too obvious like oh if i take one more of these i'm going to be hallucinating for the rest of my life <laughs> yes players might be like oh okay <laughs> yeah right, i guess i, guess I, I, guess I won't take them again yeah and that's it's, it's too obvious and there's no nuance to the decisions there yeah no that's so a good one when you're when you're approaching it from a narrative standpoint you got to really refine those scenes to be exactly where you want them to be because again too subtle the players feel cheated too explicit there's no choice yes yeah um, and then also, you know, don't under, underestimate the intelligence of your players. You know, don't don't feel like you need to spoon feed them everything just so that they understand, right. um, you know, the, the underlying the meaning of, of what the game is about. Right. I think um, that can be a fine line, too, because you may have a message that you do really want the player to walk away with um, or have, you know, a plot point that you really want to to have everybody understand. Um, but maybe, you know, maybe it's OK if some people don't don't understand some thir- some certain aspects or, or right. certain things. Um, and really just play around with what the goal of your game is and, and what feelings you want your players to walk away from. And, and if your game is a great time to have some, you know, deep explorations of, of, okay, what does this mean? What does this might, you know, what could this lead to? Um, what can I do with this mechanic? Yeah, just play test. <laughs> play test, play test, play test. That's yeah. the real takeaway from this show. Speaking of takeaways. Yeah. So I think the biggest takeaway um, that I'll say for this is that the goal here. It shouldn't be to have the player predict what is going to happen next. Um, so this is in terms of you know narrative and mechanics, right? It shouldn't. The goal shouldn't be to have some information laid out like a breadcrumb trail and then mm-hmm. have them have this giant realization of oh this is what I'm supposed to be. This is what I was supposed to be doing the whole time. Right. I think the idea instead should be to at least get them thinking about the situation and what could happen. So it shouldn't be about you know Eureka. It should be more oh man, what if this were to be the thing instead of this, right? Because then that prepares the player for when that big eureka moment does happen. Whether they got to that moment by themselves or not, they were at least thinking about it and they were prepared for it and they were invested in what, what is happening. And I think that should be the goal, right? So, you know, there's the the idea of having a gun on the wall, right? In the first act, you better it better get fired by the third act. That's a, something a right. lot of people know. And if you have something like that in a game, not a, the gun is just an example, but you know, plot point, maybe it's a gun, whatever. If you present that at the beginning, players are going to maybe start thinking, "Oh, well, that's going to have an impact later on." And you don't necessarily need to to go by the the obvious, right? You could subvert those expectations in a way. But the reason the player won't feel cheated if you, you know, do it properly is because they've been thinking about it the whole time. And I think that's just, you know, something to keep in mind as, as you're designing and as you're working on subverting player expectations and, and keeping people, you know, engaged and interested um, and, and passionate. How you create, you know, passionate people who are very excited right. to play these games and, and who love these characters and are so invested. Um, I think this is part of how that happens. Well, excellent. And on that note, I think we'll see everyone next time. Yeah, you bet. All right. So quick sign off this week. I'm going to talk about how I had a, an experience with the implicit game design gone wrong. Yeah where I was playing the first season of Telltale's Game of Thrones game, which, or as will be forever known, Telltale's only season of Game of Thrones game. <laughs> Seriously, I, I miss Telltale. Sorry, that's, Telltale. That's too bad what happened yeah. to them. But 
this was a game which was set in Game of Thrones universe around the time of season two, or mm-hmm. the War of the Five Kings, and you were playing as a minor house in the war that wasn't that wasn't really declared for any side yet, and they were kind of getting into political beef with a rival house of a similar size, and it looked like things might be heading that they were going to get into a big battle with each other, which wouldn't be good. And you play as a couple different characters from this one house, and you have to try to steer things either towards war or away from war with this other house. And I'm a pacifist. I don't, I don't like <laughs> to fight people. I know I'm Canadian who plays ice hockey, but I don't like to fight people. <laughs> I understand. So, I spent the whole game swallowing my pride, being the better man, not antagonizing anyone, trying to fight for peace, and keep everyone happy. I thought that was what the game was trying to communicate to me implicitly, (laughs) that I have to choose, do I want to be a pacifist or a warmonger? Mm -hmm. I thought that was the choice. That was not the choice. The choice was like, make whatever choices you want, but there's going to be war at the end no matter what, because we've got to set up season two. Mm -hmm. So they look foolish now, don't they? (laughs) That's it. Yeah, that's a very, that's very sad. You were trying so hard to read deeply. I was a pacifist for the whole bloody game. Yeah. And I still get punished. Yeah. And that was very frustrating for me. And I will never play season two, nor will I even have the choice to. Yeah. What you gonna do? Man, no choices. Just basically what the game was about, right? It all circles back. It's sad. Okay. <laughs> Sorry for that downer, everybody. <laughs> yeah, it happens. You like tell a knock-knock joke or something to brighten up the episode? For that, to brighten um, up the end? Hey, Google. Joke. Sure, here's one of my favorites. If you cross your fingers after surgery, you'll heal faster. Or maybe it's just super stitching. God damn it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Panic Mode. You can reach us on social media at panicmode.net, all spelled out, or on our website, panicmode.net. We would love to hear any comments, questions, or feedback you have about today's episode. And we'll be back next time where we'll do more applied game design theory, taking what we know and applying it to games. And we'll see you then.